Hello, and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and today we're going to talk about 10 tips for smarter program design. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I just want to say if you celebrated Labor Day, I hope it was awesome. We had an amazing weekend, got to go to an Indy 11 game. We tackled a brisket kind of as a family. 18 and a half hours later, we had quite a tasty meal. And yeah, just got to hang out, relax, did dual sleepovers. So Kendall is obsessed with taking my spot on the bed and having a sleepover with Jess. They do facials, movies, all that good stuff. And Kate and I basically veg out in the living room and watch a movie. And then he goes up to his bed and gets a good night's sleep and I sleep on the couch. So other than that part of it and the like five and a half hours of sleep I got, all in all, really, really good weekend. And good news my children go back to school, at least in a 50% capacity this week. So it's definitely going to be bittersweet. We've had them around for like six months straight, you know, like no days off. And so it'll definitely be interesting on Thursday when the bus comes to pick them up, just going through that, seeing how that feels, seeing how they feel about that. I know they're excited, but also, I mean, again, six months since they've done an actual day in school. So Looking forward to that, but also just trying to figure out all the emotions and all the feels that we're going to have that day. So no ad, no mid-roll this week. If you want to and you're interested in learning more about program design, obviously listen to this podcast. Also, make sure you check out completecoachcertification.com. Depending on when you're listening to this, we may be actually in our public launch. And if for some reason you listen to it after this week and it's back to the insiders list, go ahead and make sure that you're signed up for the insiders list so that the next time we open, which will be in March of 2021, you will be the first to know and you will also be eligible for a $200 discount. So let's dive in, shall we? Let's talk about program design. So program design is something that I've always been fascinated with and I think back to, you know, the olden days in 2000, 2001, when I first started writing programs for myself, for the various teams that I worked with at Ball State, whether it was men's volleyball, women's volleyball, towards the end of the spring semester in 2002, working with our women's soccer team. The longer I did it, the more responsibility I got. And I'd like to think I've learned some things over the years. (laughs) I mean, I still think back to that first program that I wrote for myself. And keep in mind, I played sports my entire life from when I was in first grade, probably even kindergarten. I remember playing soccer and t-ball and slow pitch, played basketball from a very early age. And I played sports throughout all of elementary, middle, high school, college. Never once did I ever throw up from a conditioning session. And these were like the old school days where like coaches were trying to make you throw up to see if you were tough or not. And long story short, the first training program I write for myself, the first strength training program I write for myself, I throw up. First and only time it's ever happened. But I still remember that first day. I mean, it was like four by 10 back squats, three zero one tempo, immediately follow that up with chin ups three times as many rounds as I could get went into Bulgarian or rear foot elevated rear foot elevated split squats, three by 10. And, okay, this gives you some ideas to how old this was, but I wrote shrugs in for myself. And I remember in between, I think it was my second and third set of shrugs, I have to go outside and basically hurl. So 
I'd like to think my program design has evolved a little bit since then. And today I wanna share with you 10 tips that I think are gonna make you a better and they're gonna make you a smarter program designer. So let's jump in. Number one, plan your workouts or plan your training sessions on paper first. Now, this may seem a little ridiculous because we have so many digital tools at our fingertips. And even when I was using Microsoft Word or using Excel to write programs, now I'm using Train Heroic. A lot of times, I still, to this day, write things out on paper first. Why? And I here's why. I'm a big believer that whether it's a Word document, an Excel document, an online coaching platform, there's a lot of pressure when you're just staring at a blank screen or just a blinking cursor. So I think it's a lot easier to just kind of free flow a little bit. Just get your old school yellow legal pad, get a pen, pencil, whatever you prefer. Just feels more organic. It allows for more freedom. There's less rigidity. It doesn't feel like you're screwing anything up, right? Like you can just kind of sit there, brain dump, put everything out there. So a lot of times what I'll do when I'm thinking about a new client or a new athlete I'm working with, I'll just start brain dumping like, okay, what kind of training effect do I want? What kind of exercises do I think I want to include? Or maybe what exercises do I not want to include? Do I want to steer clear of? So I'll kind of just do this big like whiteboard one page brain dump. And then once I've done that, I find it's very, very easy to write the program from there. And here's a side benefit, my friend. There's a whole lot less distractions when you're just using a pen or a pencil and paper versus using your iPad or your iPhone or your Mac, whatever it is you write programs on. There's so many distractions. There's so many things, whether it's email, social media, notifications, just put all that away, lock in on what you're doing. And the analog version of program design can really do wonders for you. It's something that I've gotten back to Part of it was going through the bullet journal. Got to thank my boy David Sutton for putting me onto that. But man, just going back to a little bit more analog stuff, reconnecting with my work, I think has made a huge difference for me. So that's number one, plan your workouts and your training sessions on paper first. Number two, your first program, the primary goal should be to fix the rate limiters. Okay. Now, first question is what is a rate limiter? A rate limiter is like the one thing in the training process or in the equation that's holding you back. Okay, so like the running joke at iFast is that, you know, this first program is everything that you suck at rolled into one workout. And, you know, they kind of laugh at first and then they realize, no, really, this is like a lot of stuff that I really suck at. And you have to ask yourself as their coach, as their trainer, what is limiting their progress? This is where your assessment process comes in. You've got to figure out what the rate limiters are. And they could be training related, such as mobility issues. It could be technical issues with their squat, their bench press, their deadlift, whatever exercises you're prescribing for them or they're working through. So they could have technique issues that you need to fix. For a lot of our fat loss people, don't tell anybody, but it's it's a conditioning issue. It's a work capacity issue. So a lot of people want to go in day one and go like three by 15 balls to the wall on like eight, 10, 12 exercises, and they simply can't do it. They can't do it because they don't have the work capacity. So a lot of times for my entry-level fat loss clients, it's like two by eight for six, seven exercises, their warm-up 
just by the nature of how we do the warmups at iFast tends to work pretty fast. So that's there's an element of conditioning there. You go through the strength training session, the R5, you get into the conditioning, R6, where we're training the alactic aerobic type stuff, where it's maybe eight on, 52 seconds off. I mean, these things can make a big impact. So you have to ask yourself, what are their limiting issues or what are their limiting factors? And how do you start addressing it now so that they feel a difference in their performance? And this is something that I've really tried to instill not only in myself, but in the interns that we've had in our gym or come through our gym, through the coaches that are in our gym now, like we like to hold ourselves to a certain standard. We're not going to come in and just crush you for the sake of crushing you. But in that same breath, we have to understand that we're always selling. And if you're listening to this and you work with clients or athletes in any environment you're selling, it doesn't matter whether you're trying to sell sessions sell packages, sell them on the fact that they need to come see you and put in a good effort. You know, like if you're in the public sector, if you're working at a high school or a college or the professional setting, you may not be selling in the sense that you're not trading money for your time, but you are selling them on the fact that they should be working out with you versus somebody else, or they should be, you know, coming in and putting in a good effort when they walk in the gym versus giving you 25%. Or faking an injury because they don't want to train. Okay, so number two, fix the rate limiters and dial things in on that first program. Start to get them moving in the right direction so that you can build on that going forward. Okay, number three, focus on building movements first. I'm going to say that again because that word's important. Focus on building movements first. So what do I mean by that? Well, everyone knows that you should squat, hinge, push, pull, and carry in your workouts, right? Right? I mean, that's what Dan John says. And I'm not, keep in mind, I am not bashing Dan John. Everybody that knows me, we've had Dan John in our gym. We have had Dan John on the podcast, of course, a couple times actually over the years. But here's what I am saying. What I get tired of are people just parroting things, right? So I don't have an issue with saying that, yeah. In a perfect world, somebody should squat, hinge, press, pull, and carry. But instead of training movements, maybe we need to be thinking about building movements first. Now, hear me out here. I understand this could be semantics, but let's just take it for instance. If somebody doesn't squat well, does that mean we should go in the gym and load them up on a squat? Probably not. If somebody has knee pain every time they lunge, should we continue to lunge them? Probably not. What about pulling or hinging? Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? If somebody doesn't squat well, should we go in the gym and immediately start loading up their squat? No, of course not. You would never do that, right? So what about a lunge? What if every time somebody lunges, they have knee pain? Well, we would probably not do that. Or a deadlift. Deadlifts are an incredibly functional movement pattern. But if every time somebody deadlifts in the gym, they end up with lower back pain, it's probably not the best pattern for them at that point in time. Okay, so what I'm getting at here is instead of focusing so much on training movements, which isn't necessarily a bad goal, I would say more importantly, the first thing we have to do is train the pattern first, right? We're not loading movements. We're not building strength. We're focusing on building movements first. And that, you know, in some cases doesn't look like the constituent exercise. I can do a lot of things that help me build a squat that involve feeling abs, feeling hamstrings, driving air into the upper back. They don't look 
like they're related to the squat. But when I start to do those things regularly, I can build a better squat pattern. And when I started to outline this and I started to think through all my talking points, it reminded me of my boy, Lil Stevie. And if you don't know who Lil Stevie is, go into the archives of YouTube, go back 2009, 2010. I had a lot more hair. Uh, (laughs) Videos were a lot grainier back then, but it reminded me of when Lil Stevie started training at iFast. And when he showed up that first day, I remember him clearly attempting to deadlift. And I thought he was going to herniate a disc on his first day in the gym. I thought for sure, this guy's getting injured and it's going to be on my watch. And so when Stevie said, I want to train at iFast, I don't have the money to do like coaching, but I can do an open gym. And I just told him, I said, look, like we don't normally take open gym members, but if you will do everything that I ask of you for the next three months to get yourself right and to give yourself a chance for success down the line, then I'll take you on. And he said, okay. And so for the next 12 weeks, we did nothing resembling a deadlift. I know we did a lot of core work. We did mobility work. We trained the hinge pattern. Like we did some RDLs. We did some pull throughs. We did a lot of things like that. We even worked on his conditioning because the guy needed some conditioning work. And I just remember about 12 weeks out, I said, hey, why don't we try that deadlift out? And immediately when he set up, I was like, okay, this is like a thousand percent better. And so he slowly ramped up. That day, he hadn't deadlifted in 12 weeks, and he took his old max, and he hit it for a triple easily. And so that just showed me the power of, you know, it's not just about testing your strength every time you're in the gym or just training a pattern. Sometimes you have to build a better pattern first. So again, maybe it's just semantics here, and I'm all for training specific movement patterns, but you got to own and build the appropriate movement pattern first. Number four. And this is going to carry on that same point. When you write a program, I think you should program more to build strength versus test strength. Now, if you're a power lifter, you can a thousand percent ignore the next couple minutes of the show, even though I think a lot of power lifters would be well served to do more of this. But I'll be blunt. I just think too many programs are focused on testing strength every week, right? It could be in the form of, hey, some people want to hit a PR every week. And if you're three months into the iron game, you can do that. I remember when I was 15, 16 years old, we got that first weight set in beautiful Muncie Burris High School, and we maxed out every Friday on bench. And almost every week, I could put five or 10 pounds on my bench press. It was crazy. I wish I could have done that over my whole career because then I might have had a semi-respectable bench press when it came to powerlifting. But, you know, at that same time, we have to understand that You can absolutely build strength in the gym without testing it. We've seen people do this all the time. And I think if you've done this long enough, you've seen it as well, where you have somebody just kind of squatting regularly or doing chin-ups regularly or doing deadlifts regularly, and you're just kind of punching the clock. You're getting the work in. You're making sure all the reps are really clean from a technical perspective. They got a little bit of snap to them as far as bar speed goes, not grinding reps out day after day after day. And all of a sudden, when you go to test, like the strength is there. It's pretty freaking cool. So, you know, just to prove that I wasn't hating on Dan John before, I would highly recommend checking out his book that he wrote along with Pavel called Easy Strength. And I mean, when you read that book, you're like, no way can you get stronger on this? No way. 
I mean, uh, there's huge portions of the book, as I recall, it's been a while since I reviewed it, but where it's like two by five on your main lift and you're just kind of hitting it kind of on a regular basis based on how you feel, just kind of greasing the groove, getting the reps in. But the whole focus there is on building strength. It's a slow burn, right? It's a simmer. And then when it's go time, you've got it in the tank. And it's funny because I was just reminded of this. Working with one of my current clients, this young gentleman had trap bar deadlifted in the past. He was very averse to doing it again. In fact, the first day when I have new clients or new athletes in, a lot of times I like to have that discussion of, hey, are there any lifts you just hate doing? And he's like, yeah, I hate trap bar. Okay, why do you hate trap bar? And you know, immediately they did it too heavy and it hurt their back. What did he say? We did it too heavy and it hurt my back. So I just said, hey, look, man, we're going to go real light. I need this because I think it's going to give us a specific adaptation. The goal with this young man was to put some weight and some size on him. So I said, we're going to keep the weight light or relatively light. We're going to go higher reps. And if I see any breakdown in your form whatsoever, we're going to shut it down. And he agreed. So for a long time, I mean, we were at like 240 for sets of eight, 260 for sets of eight. And I was averse to putting weight on. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to go there with him until one of his boys came in the gym one day. They were trap barring together and the other guy's pretty darn strong in his own right. So the other guy goes up to like four plates, which is like 420 on our trap bar. And so, you know, a skinnier guy says, Hey, leave, just take one off, leave the third plate on there, which is 330. Now keep in mind, we'd not been over 260 the entire summer. And he proceeds to go up and bang out a set of five, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. So the goal here, or the point here, my friends, is very simple. You don't have to test strength. And I think if you're constantly testing your strength, you're setting yourself up for burnout, injury, or a combination of the two. I think the longer you do this, the more you realize the bulk of your sessions need to be focused on just that slow build, that slow burn to develop strength over the long haul versus simply trying to go in the gym and test it each and every workout. Number five, don't waste the warm-up. Warm-ups can be such a critical piece of your workout. And I just think too often the warm-ups that we prescribe are arbitrary. They're boring. And ultimately, they're just wasted time. They're wasted effort on our clients or our athletes' part. And I will be the first person to raise my hand and say, hey, there are times I don't put enough time and energy or thought into the warm-ups. Sometimes, too, especially in like my group settings, it's kind of like, oh, I've got this kind of set routine I like to take guys through or gals through. They know it. It's part of the routine. But anytime I can dial things in and refine it, we can make a big impact on how our clients move and feel. And I think that's how we need to think about it, right? This is another chance to help our clients and athletes move better. So what I like to think of it as is if you're familiar with the R7 approach, like R2 are your resets, right? Those are your breathing correctives, whatever you want to call them. But R2 are your breathing and reset type exercises. R3 is your readiness. That's your warm-up. And then R4 is your reactive, your speed power. R5 is your resistance. So the way I like to set it up, and I think the way you should be trying to set it up, is you do your breathing and your resets in R2, then you use your warm-up to layer that stuff in, okay? Typically, resets, correctives are very kind of, I don't want to say mundane, but they're very basic in nature, 
right? They're very like focused on driving air into a certain area or feeling a certain muscle. Well, now when we stand somebody up and we get them moving, R3 is a great time. It's a low threshold environment to start getting people to feel those things as they transition into their actual workout. All right. So this is a great time to further address and clean up those movement efficiencies. Because I think otherwise you put all the stock and all the emphasis on the resets and the R2, man, that it just doesn't work like that. If you really want to clean somebody up and get them moving and shaking great, it's got to be an R2. It's got to be an R3. It's got to be an R4. It's got to be an R5. It's got to be an R6. The entire workout has to be geared and designed towards helping people move and feel better. But don't waste this time. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your client's time. Dial in the warm-up. Make sure that it's efficient and that it's effective and it can make a big impact on how your athletes move and on their readiness to train. Cool? Okay, number six. Remember, there are lots of ways to get an adaptation. And this is something that too often when we write a program, it's we're just thinking about exercise, right? Like a squat or a bench press or a deadlift or a jump or whatever. Like we're thinking about exercises and we're not thinking about adaptations. And a great example of this is like the age old debate of, well, should you just Olympic lift your athletes or should you just do sprints and med ball throws? And it's like these two camps, I'm pretty sure are destined to go to war for as long as the internet is a thing. Like these people get so adamant about this stuff. And, you know, a small part of me wants to raise my hand and say, well, can't you do both? You know, like if you're good at both and you're proficient at both, can't you use both? But, you know, when I start to think about an adaptation, it takes me back to when I first created my R7 presentation. I, man, I want to say this was like 2012, 2013 which also tells me I've been giving this talk for a really long time now. But when I would get to, say, R4, where I'd talk about power and speed and agility training, or I'd get to R5, one of the big things that I tried to impress upon the people that I was lecturing to was that, like, I don't care what means you use. So, for instance, in R5, I said, you know, here's all the tools that you can use. And it was like barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, bands, chains, body weight. I'm sure there's a thousand more sandbags. Like I could go on and on and on. But the thing I tried to impress upon them was like, I don't care what tools you use. There's lots of ways to get an adaptation. But what's most important beyond getting the adaptation is are you comfortable teaching it? That's a huge take home point because there's certain things that I'm very comfortable teaching things that I'm very comfortable coaching. There's other things that I'm not, you know, and I'll be frank, like, could I probably coach a ranked novice in the Olympic lifts? Yes. Would I be comfortable standing next to a high level Olympic weightlifting coach and showing off my chops? Probably not. Okay. So that's probably not something I'm going to use as often, but if you're good at it, then use it, right? Just know and understand, like, just because somebody else is doing something with great success doesn't mean that you can't have success doing something very dissimilar to them right? As long as you're chasing and getting the same adaptation, I would say you're probably on the right track. Number seven, take the time to build templates. So let's come back to number one. When you're writing a program or, you know, I used to write a lot of articles. 
I don't think there's anything worse when you're writing an article or writing a program than staring at a blank screen. It's like so overwhelming. So I am always, I've always been a believer in sketching things out, whether it's on paper, whether it's just taking notes and putting them into the notes app on your phone. I don't care what you use, but you got to have something to pull from first. And it's funny because when I start using the word template, I get a lot of hate. And it's funny because (laughs) I really believe that, you know, anyone who tells you that every program they write is, quote, custom made, unquote, is either, number one, really new to writing programs, right? Like they've been doing this less than a year. Number two, they're spending way too much time writing programs. Like these are the people that are spending like hours or days trying to write one training program. Or number three is lying through their teeth. (laughs) Because I think anybody that's done this for a while, whether they know it or not, they have templates in their brain. And so I think most of your clients' goals are going to fit into a handful of buckets. You've got your athletic development clients. You have your strength training clients, like people that are focused on building pure strength. You have your hypertrophy or your muscle building clients, and you got your fat loss clients. Now, You could have other little offshoots of those, but those are like the big four. So if I were you, I would start to build out those kind of four tracks. And then, you know, once you've got like the set rep schemes in place, the time under tension, the rest periods, now you got to think about, okay, what kind of client or athlete do I have in front of me? In other words, how do they move? What tendencies do they have? So again, I've kind of got this broken down into three buckets. Do they need to learn how to load their body more effectively? Do they need to work on like force absorption or probably a better term would be force redirection? Two, are they pretty balanced? Can they go in and squat, push, pull, hinge, carry, do all those things and just kind of as long as you write them a balanced program, they're going to stay okay? Or number three, do they need to learn how to propulse, right? Or push. And these are a lot of kind of your, for lack of a better term, your slow kids that, that come to you, like tell you like 98% of the phone calls and the consults I do for iFast start with, Oh, little Johnny or little Susie is a great shooter or great on the ball in soccer or whatever, whatever. Great, great hitter, but they're slow. Like it always ends with, but they're slow. So those athletes need to learn how to propulse. So I think once you kind of have the set rep schemes in place, you right. You got your athletic development, your hypertrophy, your fat loss, your strength development, once you've got those laid out, then you can kind of customize and tweak those based on what the client needs from there. Like your exercise selection is kind of dictated for you based on their tendencies. And I'm just going to throw a shameless plug out there, but like if you struggle with this stuff or you want to learn more about it, I've got all this coming in the next update of the complete coach cert. I've got all kinds of templates in there. I think by the time it's all said and done, there's going to be close to 20 done for you training templates that you can take and start tweaking and applying to the clients and athletes that you're working with. So that's number seven, take the time to build templates. Number eight, underwhelm them early. That's right, underwhelm them early. So I'm gonna call back to my 19 ninja tricks to helping you write better programs podcast. Definitely gets an award for one of the longest podcast titles, but In that podcast, I talked about this point specifically, and I want to bring it up again because I think it's so incredibly powerful. Too often, we want to show everything we've got in our bag in blog number one. 
You know, it's inverted Bosu ball squats, reverse lunge to overhead press, triple low hurdle to box jumps, on and on and on. And I say that kind of facetiously because I hope you're not doing like Bosu ball squats with your clients and athletes. But my point here is like if you're showing them the whole bag in month one, what do you do in month number two or month three or month six or month 12? How do you build on that first month? Okay. So instead, I think what you need to be able to do is explain to them why some of the stuff that you're doing may seem easy, why it may seem simple. It comes back to building the movements, right? They may think that they can go in day one and back squat and lunge, and then you show them, oh, hey, this is why you probably can't or shouldn't be doing that, at least for now. And I think that's another key point. You don't want to tell people you can't do these exercises you like to do forever, right? You don't want to have to do that. So kind of give them the carrot. And a lot of times I'll tell them, hey, look, like, I don't think that's the best exercise for you right now, but my goal is to help build these better movement patterns. So in the end, we can go back to those. You're going to feel better. You're going to move better. And ultimately you're going to be able to, you know, whatever it is, uh, use more weight, do it faster. It's going to help you run faster, jump higher, help you shed more body fat, whatever. Okay. But here's another thing that I think is really important beyond explaining to them why this is going to pay dividends. But I think it'll help you if you think about or you start to consider how this differentiates you and another coach. Because, man, you just took the time, hopefully, to assess this client. You wrote them a semi-customized program or you took a template and then tweaked it and customized it to them, right? And now you're actually taking the time to explain to them and educate them why they shouldn't do that forward lunge that hurts their knee every time they do it. Or they shouldn't do that overhead press that impinges their shoulder every time they do it. Because now you're starting to differentiate yourself. You're starting to show why, hey, look, there's a reason I don't charge 20 bucks a session or I don't just make up my workout the day before based on exercises I saw on YouTube. Like that's not how you roll. So I think it's it's okay to underwhelm them early as long as you're not deliberately holding them back for no reason and you're educating them as to how in the long term, this is going to be beneficial to them. I think most rational people will thank you for that. And I think ultimately it will allow you to build trust and build rapport so that those clients and athletes stay with you longer. So that's number eight, underwhelm them early. Number nine, find ways to make training fun. And I know I've talked about this in other places, but I don't think I've ever really talked about it directly on the podcast. And I think this is really hard for us. As trainers, as coaches, we tend to get confused. There's a reason we're in this industry, right? Because chances are, like, we like working out. Like, we may not like it always in the moment. And some of us do, right? The true masochists out there just love, like, the training process. You know, I like training as well. I don't, I don't dislike pain, discomfort. I, I know those things are beneficial to me. But think about this, like, probably a lot of the people that come and see us don't feel the same way, right? Most of your clients and athletes do not like going to the gym. I hate to break it to you. This is a means to an end for them. So maybe it's a gin pop client. A gin pop client in a lot of cases is specifically hiring you to keep them accountable. They don't want to go to the gym. So they are paying you to make them, I don't want to say feel bad, but they're paying you to make sure that they do come to the gym. A lot of the athletes that you work with, they don't necessarily want to be in the gym. Some of them do. 
Those are the ones we love training. In a lot of cases, those aren't your best athletes. There's a reason they like the gym more because they're better in the gym than they are on the field, court, or pitch, right? So it's your job to find ways to make training fun and engaging to keep them coming back. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's connecting with them on a personal level, finding things they're excited about. Maybe it's putting them around the right group of people. I know that's something I've tried to do a lot of this year is create groups where there's a lot of synergy and just a lot of energy between people. That makes people want to come back. You know, results. Results don't hurt either, but find ways to make it fun. It could be your exercise selection. You know, if you've just been banging weights with your clients and athletes forever, hey, go throw a med ball, push a prowler, throw in some jumps if they're ready for it. Find ways to make training fun and engaging, and I guarantee you're going to get a better training effect. Last but not least, number 10, begin with the end in mind. And I know I've said it many times, but what's your long-term vision for this client or athlete? Too often, we're just focused on four weeks, six weeks. It's like the whole challenge mindset, right? So if you've seen, oh, six-week challenge, drop, whatever, two dress sizes, drop 30 pounds, whatever, whatever, like that's the mindset that so many people are coming in with. And so I think it's refreshing when I work with somebody and they're immediately understanding and tolerant of the fact that this could be a longer term process, right? So I think there's this balance here and it's definitely like walking a tightrope because you have to be able to show them progress in the short term. You have to show some sort of demonstrable progress to keep them going, but you also have to have that strong long-term vision for where they're going And here's the real key. You got to have an idea as to how you'll get there. So the note that I wrote down here, it's vision plus assessment is the key. Okay. So the vision is where they're going, right? That's like the 12 month goal, right? Or the five year goal. It's the long-term vision. Your assessment gives you the here and now. Like this is the, this is where they're starting from. They're 50 pounds overweight. They squat 300 pounds, whatever the case may be. And then your job, what makes you a true coach, is being able to create a program or a roadmap that gets them from A to B. And keep in mind, guys, this isn't GPS, right? This isn't like, here's the straightest shot. It's going to take X amount of time. Like, this is long, winding paths. You know, sometimes there's detours along the way. There's a lot of things that can happen when you're dealing with humans. But I think it's your job to find this balance of determining where they're at, having a long-term vision for where they're going and being able to craft that program or that roadmap that gets them to their end goal. But I think if you want to do that, an assessment isn't enough. You have to begin with the end in mind. So my friend, that is it. So I want to give you all 10 of them again, because I like to kind of break them down and just kind of give you a quick refresher. So we started with number one, plan on paper first. Digital tools are great. But I think analog, less pressure, less distractions, and it allows you to just kind of get everything out on paper first, everything out of your head. And then it's that much easier to write that first program. Number two, fix their rate limiters with the dreaded first program. Rate limiters will hold you back forever. So you can choose to ignore them, but it's way easier. Address them right off the bat, get them moving in the right direction, and then you're good to go. Number three, focus on building movements first. All four training patterns, training movements, that's great. 
squat, lunge, press, pull, hinge, carry, whatever, all of them are. I can't even keep track of all of them because sometimes there's five, sometimes there's 10. I'm all for it. You can train movements, but more importantly, build movements first. Number four, along those same lines, don't get caught up in testing strength. Program to build strength first. Number five, don't waste the warm-up. It's an opportune time to bridge that gap, to help your clients move and feel better, and to get them prepared to train at a very high level in their next workout. Number six, lots of ways to get an adaptation, my friend. You don't have to do all the things that the guys or gals on the internet are doing. You can still get a great training effect as long as the focus and the intention is on getting the adaptation first and foremost. Number seven, take the time to build templates. Templates are not a bad word. They're not a dirty word. They're not a four-letter word. Templates save you time. However, the goal, once you have templates, is to take them, tweak them, customize them, so that ultimately you're giving your client and athlete the exact program they need. Number eight, underwhelm them early. The goal isn't to show them the entire bag, to show them all the cool exercises that you know on their first day or in their first training month. Underwhelm them early. Build those movement patterns. Layer in small doses of success so that ultimately they keep coming back to you for a lifetime. Number nine, find ways to make training fun. We love training. Other coaches, other trainers love training. Our clients and our athletes, they might like training, but they probably don't. So it's your job to find ways to make it fun make it engaging so that they keep coming back. And then number 10, begin with the end in mind. Remember, vision plus assessment. The assessment gives you the starting point. The vision is the long-term goal. Putting those two together to create a program and a roadmap to get them from A to B, that's what you get paid the big bucks for, my friend. Okay, so that does it for this episode. 10 tips for smarter program design. What do you think? I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. If you did, definitely shoot me an email, mike at robertsontrainingsystems.com. I would just love to hear from you. If you're not already, make sure to subscribe to the show. Anywhere you can consume podcasts, we are there. iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. I think we're on Amazon now. Like If you listen to podcasts somewhere, we're probably there. If you're already a subscriber, thank you. I appreciate it. Take two minutes out of your day, go to iTunes, give us a rating and a review. If you feel like it's worthy, a five-star rating would be great because ratings and reviews are the absolute best way to help more people hear and learn about our show. You guys know what I'm all about now. I mean, I do this for free because I love it. I love interacting with other coaches, other trainers, and most importantly, I love helping people like you get better results with your clients and athletes. So my friend, that does it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.